Father God, we have gathered together today because we recognize that it is only through Jesus Christ that we have hope. It is because of Jesus and his love that is on display through the cross, Father, that we can come to our creator and be made right with you, Father. God, I pray this morning that as we sing songs of worship, Lord, as we worship through the teaching of your word, Father, as we worship through prayer, Lord, all this is meant to honor you, to worship you, to give you praise as you are the one worthy of worship. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. I love it. Love it. We are excited to kick off our new series in the book of Genesis. We're going kind of verse by verse through the book of Genesis. We're certainly doing these initial chapters verse by verse. When we get later, we'll have big chunks that uh, hopefully you'll be uh, following along, and we'll do the, the, the main plot themes of these narratives that we see in Genesis. But today we come to the days of creation, and we're going to take two weeks on the seven days that we are looking at in chapter one, towards the end of chapter uh, one. So let me just test you to begin with. You know, there's the traditional account of creation. The traditional account of creation is what we're teaching in our, our curriculum throughout the church. We'll be teaching as we kick off this gospel project curriculum. It'll begin in Genesis 1, and we'll cover the whole Bible. The whole church will cover the whole Bible in three years. Now, we're preaching through Genesis now, but we're not going to be going coinciding with that material. But in that material, you're being taught the tra traditional view of creation. What is the traditional view of creation? I know we think we know it, right? You're like, oh yeah, we got this. That's why it's called traditional. What happened uh, day one in creation? Go ahead and interact with me. Day one. Oh, we got a right answer. The first service was way more confused than this one. All right, so let there be light. Now, what exactly was that? What happened on day four? The sun was on day four, so what was day one? Okay, so we've got to explain that in the traditional account. We, we explain it. It could very well be the light of Jesus. Jesus, in the end times, there will be no sun. So the point is, we've got some things to figure out as we look at the text of Scripture. What happened on day two? Like I said, what happened on day two? Everybody's like, get the Bible open. What exactly is the account? What happened on day two? Separate the waters. Is that what you said? Yeah, okay. And what is that? The ferment atmosphere. Okay, what is that? What exactly is that? Huh? Material? That's a good point. That's a theological point. But so the point is there's some interpretation involved. What does it mean when you separate the atmosphere or when you separate the waters from below the waters above? And day three, what happened? What happened on day four? We do know that one. That's the sun, moon, the stars was created and defined the purpose. Day five, day six. You get the point. So the point is there is a lot of interpretation that has to go on in the study of these accounts. And... As we come to the text, to make matters worse, I'm going to present a little different version. Now, that scares the daylights out of many of you. It scares the daylights out of me. Because 
as we come to the text, we want to be faithful to the text of Scripture, and we do not want to let anything outside the text force conclusions upon us. For example, science. Oftentimes, the scientific community, which is studying what we see in God's creation, oftentimes many scientists are atheistic, and they do not feel bound to reconcile with the Bible. So they look at their, uh, their hypothesis, their testing, and then they form philosophical conclusions about what they see in the data. And they may think one thing. And then we come to the Bible, and we study the Bible, and we say we want to be faithful to what the Bible says, and we come to a conclusion that may or may not agree with their conclusions. And so oftentimes throughout history, you have this idea of science and religion being at war with each other, which is a shame because that shouldn't be true at all since the, the creator and created what we are studying as scientists, and it's a glorious activity to discover with new discoveries day after day, year after year, the glories of God. But it makes dealing with these texts very highly sensitive because over the years, people have dug their heels in and formed battlegrounds. And they like to throw you in a camp that you're either this camp or that camp. And the overgeneralization of these camps is this. If you tend to believe that there is a young earth and you believe the Bible is literal and true, true, the scientists, overgeneralization, many scientists want to call you a caveman, knuckle-dragging person who has no intellect, right? And if you're a scientist who believes that maybe the earth is 10... 8 billion years old or 16 billion years old or whichever one they want to go with. And a lot of times Christians will jump to conclusion and assume that they are not taking the Bible seriously, that they do not believe the Bible is literal and true. And so that makes it very challenging for us to talk about these matters. Well, our church is filled with people who go to science classes, who go to med school, who become doctors or PAs or nurses or all in the scientific community. And what I hope to do today, if nothing else, is two things. I hope, number one, to help you know how to think and have these kind of conversations without abandoning your high view of Scripture that we talked about all summer. We need to be able to engage in these conversations. We need to be able to do it with humility to the glory of God. But we need to be able to to be able to have these conversations rather than just blindly say, I don't know, you don't believe the Bible, and you're wrong. And the same should be the other way. No one should say that we don't take science seriously or that we're not intellectuals because we believe the Bible to be true. So one thing I want you to do is to to have a confidence in the high view of Scripture that we say that we have and to be able to have these conversations without compromise. The other thing is what I hope you see, and I'm telling you up front because it's about to get in the weeds and get very challenging to follow, but I want you to not miss this point. The point of this message is this. God created everything effortlessly. He spoke it into existence and he controls it. He guides it. He's in it. He did it all. And amazingly, he did it for our good and for his glory. He loves you that much. 
He entered into that creation that he created. He entered in as a person named Jesus, the God-man, who died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. The creator of the universe took on flesh to die for our sins, to suffer the pain of sin, the effects of sin. He took the sufferings upon himself. This God who created, who governs and controls the universe did that for you. Surely there's only one response, and that's worship, to turn our life over to him, trust him as our savior, forgiveness of sins, and live our lives for his glory. Amen? Can we all agree on that? If you agree, say amen really loud. Amen. All right. Now we're all in unison. Now you can hate my guts as we go through Genesis. No, but before we go, I want to do two things. As, as I feel necessary uh, to do based on our, interpret, our, our realization that you're, you're just like where I was. When I started studying this, I thought, well, I don't even fully have grasp in my mind what is considered the traditional interpretation. So I had to study that an enormous amount. And then I started to reconcile and look at and scrutinize what I'm presenting to you as historical creationism. So there's traditional creationism, and now there's historical creationism. So what I want to do is go a brief overview of, of traditional creationism, and then I'm going to present to you historical creationism, and then we're going to say, so what are the effects of this on our life? Now, I'm nervous to do this. Why? Well, I should be nervous to do this. Anytime you find yourself not agreeing with what we know as traditional evangelical views, you better be very afraid because you're usually wrong. I'm usually wrong. Now, in this case, we have a long history of historical creationism that I'm presenting today that has undergone a lot of scrutiny with a lot of brilliant evangelical Hebrew scholars, and they have concluded this is certainly a faithful handling of the scriptures which means that when you read this text in Hebrew, you go, okay, that word could mean earth, that word could mean land, that, earth, that word could mean heavens, that word could mean skies, that word could mean this, that word could mean that. And when you look at the syntax of the Hebrew, you have to decide what is being said here, and then you have to translate that into English. And there's a lot of interpretation going on there. But even Hebrew scholars who, who come to different conclusions that it would say that they are traditional creationism, would say that this handles the Hebrew and the scriptures with extremely high view of faithfulness. These are very faithful evangelical uh, handling of the scriptures. And that's what you do, because if you don't learn all this method, that's okay. I don't care if you can recite historical creationism. What I do want you to know is as you interact with people in the community, as you interact with science, as you read alternative views, I want you to know that the way you do come about it should be with a high view of scriptures in submission to what the text says, not to what science says, but what the text says. And to the extent that you can say, this is what I think the text says, you then can, can have a conversation with someone who says, here's what I think the conclusions of our scientific study says, and we have an opportunity to talk about it. And not label each other, not hate each other, not dig in, and not call each other names, but just to have a conversation. And then we can, can exist and coexist and talk about what we understand the Bible says. So, again, to give you some peace of mind that that's what I've been doing, I've been studying Selhammer's point of view for 18 years. 18 years. This is the first time I have publicly taught this. 
Because for 18, 18 years ago, I had the privilege of meeting him. I went to dinner with him. It was an incredible privilege. I had no idea what he said the whole meal. He was so smart. But I read his book, Genesis Unbound. I have a copy of it here. I encourage you, if you geek out on this stuff like I do, and you want to know more about it, get the book, Genesis Unbound, and read it. And most of it is just talking about the Bible, the text, this Hebrew word, how it's used. It's not talking about, oh, how can we make science like us? How can we make science find us acceptable? That's not the point. The point is, what does the Hebrew text say? Now, you may agree or disagree with his conclusions, but before you get all upset about it, at least read the book and consider what he is saying so that out of fear we're not jumping to conclusions to make him say things he's not saying. Now, as we consider what people say and what they write, we should consider what people in our faith and and the people we stand on their shoulders say about him. So, Walt Kaiser, everyone who who knows uh, the... Our community of faith knows that Walt Kaiser is a conservative evangelical. He's president emeritus and distinguished professor of Old Testament and ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He says about Genesis Unbound, it's startlingly, that's a hard word, it is startlingly, startlingly refreshing and innovative interpretation of the text of Genesis. The word innovative always scares me. But then he goes on to say, not everyone will adopt the features of this reverent treatment of the text. So Walt Kaiser himself says this is a reverent treatment of the text that all will find plenty to challenge their thinking. This volume will be talked about for years to come. So as we read, we say, what do other conservative scholars that we trust say about this? Elmer Martins, Ph.D., Professor Emeritus at at and Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at the Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary. Doesn't get any more conservative. He says, This is a work by an author unbound except for being intent on listening to the biblical text. Selhammer has so focused on the text itself that his work must be taken seriously. That's very important that who you're reading is that serious about the word of God and holds it in that high esteem. Daniel Block, Ph.D., the Gunther Professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. We like Wheaton College. It says, Genesis Unbound represents a fresh and provocative challenge to traditional, classical, and popular understanding of the first two chapters of the Bible by, listen to what he says about Selhammer, by one of today's foremost evangelical authorities on the book of Genesis. Dr. Selhammer's conclusions are based upon a detailed analysis of the biblical text and thorough understanding of the history of its interpretation. So notice what you do not have. You do not have a bunch of people saying, this science guy has really made the Bible make relevant, been, make it relevant. That's not our goal. Our goal is to be faithful to the text of Scripture. I'm presenting to you that I think historical creationism is a faithful possibility, a faithful alternative. I don't care if you adopt it. If you go with traditional, that is fantastic. That's what our church is being taught church-wide in all of our curriculum. So let me first overview what the traditional view is. Then we will present this historical creationistic view, which is not radically different, though your mind explodes when you first hear it. And then finally, 
So what? What does this have to do with my life as I head back to high school Monday, tomorrow morning? Let me pray. Father God in heaven, we praise you. We thank you for your greatness, your, your, enormous, your just enormous grace to create all of this for our good that you may enter into this world to give us eternal life in your presence. May we worship you in all that we say and do this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so first, the traditional creationism view as an overview. Look at your Bibles, verse 1 and 2. We see the first event in the traditional account. God created a primordial version of the universe out of nothing, matter, space, time, but still a chaotic state. The universe, verse 2, lacked order and content of some sort, sorry, it lacked order and it was in chaos of some sort. And there was a, a, many explain it as more of a, a water covering of types over creation. And then God in day one through the following days is bringing order and bringing, creating these things that we mentioned. Day one, God created the light. He called it light. The traditional view has to explain what that light is in light of verse of day four. Uh, but there is light that God creates. He speaks it into existence. And these are literal days, day one. Day two, God created the sky. Most traditionalists agree that that sky, because verse 20 is where the birds are flying. It's the same word. So it's the sky that God creates where the clouds are above and the below is the waters on the earth. Day three, God creates the seas and the land with plants. And then day four, God creates the sun, the moon, the stars, and he defines their purpose. And day five, God creates the fish and the sea animals. And day six, God created the land animals and the critters, I call them, because it's all the things crawling and stuff. And then he also creates, as the pinnacle of creation, humanity on day six. And then day seven, we all know what happened on day seven. What happened on day seven? God rested. Amen. Glorious day seven. All right, so this certainly is the traditional, it's faithful, it's wonderful, it's good. That is what historians for ages have concluded is the traditional interpretation of Hebrew. It is faithful and good. And if that is all you ever go with, that is wonderful. That's what we're teaching in the gospel project all throughout. Seven literal days, God creating and God ordering the universe that was in chaos. So now we're going to go through detailed presentation of historical creationism, which I, I would am excited to tell you that over the last 18 years, I have gained more confidence to go public with this because John Piper endorses it. Matt Chandler, in explicit gospel, says he labels himself as a historical creationist. Creation, he says, I, I would label myself as adhering to Selhammer's crea- historical creationism. So what I'm telling you is we're not stepping out of evangelical conservative presentation and handling of the Bible. So what's different? Basically, to simplify it before we go into details, the main difference is that Selhammer, the cre- historical creationism, says that in Genesis 1-1, everything was created Sun, moon, stars, everything in the sense, except for humanity, in the sense that like when you think of everything that was created outside before the fall, days one through six, the sun, moon, stars, plants, animals, everything, he says that was all Genesis 1-1, and then the account of Genesis 1 through 7, which are literal days, 
the count of one through seven is zeroing in on that creation on a specific piece of land that has yet been prepared. And that one piece of land is underwater. He calls forth that piece of land and the water, the clouds, he puts the clouds above it. The sky atmosphere forms above it. As that land comes, the waters dissipate into the three Mediterranean Sea, the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea. And there's this land that is the center, and that land sprouts forth vegetation. And then he creates man and woman. He nestles them in the garden that's on that land. And that land subsequently becomes the main point of the Pentateuch, the main point of the Bible. It's the promised land. So it's not radically different. It's very textual. In fact, his argument in the book is that his, argument, his process of studying it, he saw this, but he went pre-scientific era. He went to the interpretations of the Hebrew text before everyone had a new scientific mind with which they read the text. And so he argues in his book that all this is what, from the earliest interpretations of Genesis and the Hebrew community had of these texts. And the emphasis in your context, your Bible, is all about the promised land. It's all about this land that God created it. So God gets to determine who's going to live in it and who's not. And God decides he's going to give it to his people. And everyone else has to get on board and worship the God who created it. And so it's not heretical. It's just even more intensely focused on the text. If you agree with it, that's great. If not, stay with the traditional. I'm certainly happy with that. So let's work through the verses. Let's see if we can present it without confusing the daylights out of everybody. In verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in this view, God created the universe. Matter, space, time, sun, moon, stars, sky, plants, fish, animals, but not man. Why not man? Because the genealogies in the Bible present very clearly humanity began at a certain time. And it seems if you do an aging through the genealogies, it's probably about 10,000 years that man was created. And you have to be wrestle with that. But almost every evangelical scholar says the genealogies make it clear. And in chapter 2, when he says God created man out of the dust, it's very literal. It's God created. So the possibility that you see here is maybe there's room for an old earth, but in my view, there's not room for an old human. Maybe man is, I mean, man is probably around 10,000 years old. Earth, in my view, maybe 10,000 years, maybe 8 billion years. Scientists right now say that the earth is 8 billion years ago, old, but you know what? They just were saying it's 16 billion. So they went from 16 billion to 8 billion with the Hubble telescope. So in an instant, they cut off gabillions of years. And so we must approach this with humility. So what do we see? Now at the same time, to take a stab, a punch at the Christians ourselves, Galileo was locked up on house arrest because he said that the earth was rotating and the sun wasn't what they thought. And so we must understand we can be, our interpretations can be clarified. But the point being here, is as you wrestle with these ideas, high view of Scripture, humility, and love as we wrestle with what does the text say. So in this presentation, all of that was created in the beginning. And we talked about last week that phrase in Hebrew. 
in the beginning means the beginning of a season of time that will have an end. And now I'll add to you the idea that it also means the early stages. It's the early stages of a season of time. And it's used in other places in your scriptures. The same Hebrew phrase in the beginning talks about Job's life. In the beginning of Job's life, these events happen. In the early stages of Job's life, these things happen. Also, it's used to talk about kings. In the beginning of this king's reign, these things happened, but his reign was longer. So this idea of in the beginning is a Hebrew phrase, which means a season or an early stage in the a longer period of time. So in the early stage of the long period of history of creation, God created everything except humanity. So when was that? We don't know. We aren't told. What, what do you see in the text that tells you how old or how long ago? We don't know. So we, ha- we have to acknowledge that we don't know for sure from this text how old it is. You may connect several other dots and come to conclusions that it's 10,000 years old, and that is perfectly acceptable. But you may come to the conclusions that it's not as young as you might think. And I would say that's perfectly acceptable too. Let's keep going. Verses 2 through following. These verses are zeroing in on a particular piece of land. The earth has already been created. The sun, moon, stars have already been created. But now we're zeroing on a particular piece of land that's underwater. It's not yet ready to be habited or inhabited by humanity. These six literal days are a week of preparation of that one particular land so that it can be inhabited by humanity and subsequently given to Abraham and his descendants. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. If you look at the little asterisk, you can see on your footnote that earth could easily be translated land. All Hebrew scholars agree. The land was without form and void. So that land, that little piece of land that's underwater, it was covered in darkness. Darkness was hovering over the face of the, dirt, of, the, of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this promised land is uninhabitable by humanity because it's underwater. God is graciously preparing land for the humanity's well-being. Notice the theme that develops in this account. And in the rest of the Pentateuch is that the enjoyment of the land is God's gracious gift. And it is safeguarded by faithful obedience to the God who created it. God, through his word, is graciously bringing order to chaos, creating things, and bringing this land up to make it habitable. And if you want to enjoy God's gracious gift, then you've got to obey him. Because he's God, he has a will for his land and his earth. And so that brings us to the, to the theological point that God is the creator who deserves obedience and is in God's providentially guiding his universe. Okay, next, what happens on day one, verse three through five? God said, let there be light. And our scientific minds immediately go, okay, so God created something there. He doesn't actually say he created anything. It just says, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So the narrator tells us that God's view of it, God declares it good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light. He names the light day, and he names the darkness night. There was evening. There was morning. One day. What's happening here? That sun that God created 
when he created everything, has risen on the promised land. Just like it had been for 10,000 years or 8 billion years. The sun rises and the sun sets. But God is providentially sustaining the sun rise and the sun set. In the Hebrew calendar, when the sun goes down at dark, that's the beginning of a day. And when it rises, that's the end of the day. When it sets, that's the end of the day, one day. This is where that came from in this view, that God is saying one day, darkness to light, one day. This is the first day on the week of preparation of this promised land by the God who created it and gives it to his people. Day two, God said, let there be an expanse, footnote, sky. Let there be a sky in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from waters, clouds. And God made the sky and separated the waters that were under the expanse, the seas that were under, from the waters that were above. The clouds are above, the seas were below, the sky in between, and it was so, the narrator says, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. So he's naming it. How do we know that sky? Well, in verse 20, the same phrase is used for where the birds fly, the sky, the heavens, the sky. So God called this space between the clouds and the waters sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So on this day too, God creates and prepares a sky above the promised land by moving the clouds over the land. Those clouds are going to be subsequently the, what brings the rain, which, which produces uh, rain for the vegetation. And let me take a moment just to notice here the narrator comments in the middle of the text. Look at verse 6. God said these things. And look at verse 7. And the narrator interrupts and says, and God made that. And that's very important for interpreting. Notice the narrator telling the story, moves the story along, and comments for clarity. So God said this, he says, but then the narrator says, God made the expanse. God separated the waters. God is the one doing this. And it was so. God spoke, and it was so. Just when he spoke it, it happened. And he says, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Let's go to day three. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. So the dry land that's under the waters rises up in the promised land coming up. And it was so. God called this dry land land or earth. And the waters that were up here gathered around into seas. And I would suggest, or Selhammer would suggest, that those are the Mediterranean Sea, the Dead Sea, and the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. In Hebrew, all bodies of water are called seas. God saw, narrator says, God saw that this was good for humanity that he is going to create shortly in the text. God saw that it was good, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. It's very important. Seed is being produced by the earth, and it's according to its own kind. Later, we're going to see that God brings forth man after his kind, and that separates the type of creation. And the narrator says, and it was so. 
Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation. The, the narrator is carefully pointing out, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. Humanity is going to, he's going to make a comment on humanity that God created humanity. The earth didn't bring forth humanity. God brought forth humanity. So the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit. The fruit bearing tree will play a role in then chapter 2 as they eat of the fruit. It says, in which was their seed, eats according to its kind. And God, narrator, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So on day three, two things happen. God calls forth the land. The waters fall off and gather into pools. Mediterranean Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea. The second thing is that God made the land grow fruit trees for humanity, which will show up again in chapter 2. But the theological point the narrator keeps wanting to emphasize is not scientific questions, but theological points. God alone knows what's good for humanity. God alone is providing what's good for humanity. God should be trusted. God is the all-wise God. He is the only one who has said who sees what is good. He's the only one able to provide what is good. And so what we'll see in chapter 3, the fall, the height of the fall is foolishness. Why would you not trust this God? He's given you everything. And you want to go outside of him? Why don't you trust his wisdom instead of eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Trust God sees what is good for you. Trust God is providing what is good for you. Okay, now we get to day four. Day four is the most challenging day for any account. I'm going to talk through the translation a little bit and help you see it. Verse 14, day four. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Again, our mind automatically says, oh, so God created the lights on that day, which it doesn't technically say that. The Hebrew could just as easily and just as faithfully, and all Hebrew scholars agree that this is a faithful interpretation, straightforward, not getting loosey-goosey with the text, could easily have been said this, let the lights in the expanse of the sky be to separate day from night. In other words, instead of let the lights, let there be lights, let the lights be for separating. So God is saying, here's what the lights are for. They're to separate the day and the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, the, the verse continues. And for days and years, verse 15, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens <clears throat> to give light upon the earth. Narrator then says, after telling what God said, the narrator says, and it was so. And now verse 16, and God made the two great lights. And that's where the traditional view says, see, day four, God made the two great lights. This view says God made those great lights in Genesis 1.1, but the author is intentionally, I mean the narrator, the author is intentionally saying God made those lights. God defines the purpose of the lights. God sustains the lights. God spoke those lights into existence. God holds the lights into the sky, and God gives the purpose for those lights. And they are to separate day from night, and they are to establish a calendar of worship. 
They separate the seasons. And the Hebrew calendar is built around those seasons so that all of their community life is to worship the Creator. Just like when Moses and when Noah got off the, the, the boat after the flood, and God says, Let the bow in the sky be. He wasn't creating the rainbow at that moment. The rainbow had always existed because of the dynamic of light and water particles. But he said, let the rainbow be a reminder of my covenant. Here he's saying, let the light be for seasons and for organizing your life. Subsequently, we see that that becomes the calendar of worship. So let it be to define your calendar for worship is where we assume that goes under this presentation. There was, and God saw the night. God saw that it was good. Excuse me. God saw that it was good. Seven times in this text, the narrator tells us God saw it was good. 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 I think we get the point. God created a really good creation for his people. So we'll stop there today. Historical creationism. All things were kicked off by God. He effortlessly spoke them into creation. He created everything. As we read in the beginning of the service, Psalm 33 says, By his word, he spoke them into existence. And he is the one and only one who knows what it's for, who has the right to dictate it, who sovereignly sustains it, who defines its purposes, who separates day and night and defines it and organizes it. And it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. But notice what we're going to see next week. Who is it good for? It's good for you. It's good for me. This God is doing all of this for us. And this, the bigger God gets in creation account, the more incredible his love gets for the fact that he did all of this to bless us. So what are the implications of this view? As we'll continue to look at it next week, we can at least summarize now. There is so much more we could talk about, but to frame it in terms of three major belief systems. Our church is filled with science majors and doctors and medical people that I think it's great that we can talk about this. There's three major belief systems, materialism, naturalism, and theism. Materialism says that the belief that all reality exists in the form of matter and energy in the world can and should be explained solely on the basis of the interaction of matter and energy. In other words, there's no room for God in their scientific experience. If they're atheists, then when they approach their scientific experiences, they say there is no room for God. It's all about material. As Bible believers, we say, no, I can't, I can't accept that. The naturalist says something very similar. It's the belief that only forces at work in the world are those inherent in the physical world. So only natural forces are at work in the physical world, they would say, including the active role of human will. So they will allow for human will and natural causes that they decide are natural 
And they say that history must be explained solely in those natural terms. There is no place for the active role of a transcendent God in naturalism. So when naturalists or materialists who are atheists start doing scientific experiments, they present a hypothesis, they test it, and then they look at the data and they come to philosophical conclusions and they say, this is what's going on, but they do not have a place for God in their interpretation of that data. That's an overstatement. That's not true of every one of them, but it's true of atheists who go about scientific uh, experimentation. But we are theists at base level. We're Christian theists. But theism is what we see from scriptures. This text determined that we must believe there is a creator God who is transcendent over and governor of the material universe. Only God is eternal, not creation, but only God is eternal. His authority is demonstrated by the power of his spoken word. He says it and it happens. His wisdom is displayed in his design behind creation and his knowledge of what is good for his people. His creation is good. As the creator, he governs it. He began it. He desires when it begins and he has a desire when it will end. He sets the boundaries of the waters. He commands the fish, the birds, and the animals. So we should be theists and I would say that this means that as we consider scientific matters, we should allow for the possibility of miracles. And we should, as we consider matters of history, we should allow for the possibility of providence, God's careful governance of the events of history. So what does this mean for you? This means that if you're a doctor, please be praying for miracles for your patients. As you interact with your students at med school, please, with humility, interact. But don't lose sight of your high view of scriptures. Don't be afraid to stand on the word of God. That as science adjusts their scientific conclusions, understand they are simply reaching philosophical evaluations of scientific data. They do not have some mar- captured the market on truth. We live in a scientific age where we feel like they're smart and we're dumb, and that's not the case. But we should all, with humility, interact with the data. When you go to school and your science teacher tells you that you must believe in evolution or you're just a dumb person of faith, that is not true. Absolutely not true. And then as Christians, we believe that this God of the universe took on flesh, entered into it in order to save us from our sins. And that is who we worship. So may we worship God together. As the band comes, I'm going to read to you a couple of summary statements that Gordon Wenham in the Word Commentary summarizes the creation account, and it's beautiful, and it should lead us to worship Jesus on the cross. Gordon Weenham summarizes the creation account and says this, and I quote, God alone creates in the full sense of the word, molding all things to fulfill his 
inscrutable purposes. He goes on to say, God divides the light from the darkness, the land from sea, and he names them. He appoints stars for signs and for fixed times. The animate creation is told to be fruitful and multiply. And man is told to subdue the earth. And the seventh day is hallowed. God sets the bounds for the natural order. And God specifies the roles of the species within it. And with this goes the corollary that all creatures will fulfill their divinely appointed role only if they adhere to God's directive. This means that you and I will only discover the human life, the humanness that God created only as we obey God's divine directive. And all of us fall short of that and that's going to be displayed in the fall that we all inherit Adam's sin nature. But God in his wisdom and his sovereignty and his transcendence and his love for you he entered into this world took on flesh to experience the sufferings and the pains and the sorrows to take the wrath himself so that when he rose again he can give us victory over death so that this earth this time this history that is just a flash in time of this eternal god that he can say, come be with me and let him bless us for the rest of eternity. May we worship God together. Father God, may we, as we sing this song about the cross, realize that you bring it all to culmination in the cross. And may we be moved, our hearts be moved and filled with joy and worship as we worship you, our creator, our sustainer, our savior, and our Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.